The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Great to be back again That's for another week. You. Yes. Any uh, prayer requests Listen, to begin the program, Father? Usual? Well, many. I... Uh ask everyone to continue their prayers for the repose of the soul of Sister Mary Joseph. Also for Del Sawoy and uh, uh, now Danette Wainen. Danette just passed away this last week. And uh, of course I ask their prayers for all the faithful departed, especially supporters of what Catholics believe because we have a special obligation to them for their uh, support of the program. But also I do ask their continued prayers for uh, Paul Riley. Uh, Paul is showing signs of uh, recovering very slowly, and he's got a long way to go. So we still pray for him. He's not out of danger yet. As you know, he was struck by, a, actually struck by a truck, a hit-and-run driver, when he, Paul, had stopped to help a motorist who was in trouble, actually. So uh, I was performing an act of charity, and uh, so we pray that God will have mercy on him and his family and bring him back uh, all the way around to full recovery, and we ask uh, also for Joseph Percher and uh, you know, so many other good souls we know, uh, a long list. Uh, God knows who they are, and if you pray for those intentions of your priests, well, God knows who they are, and he will have mercy on them, and have mercy on you also for your act of charity and praying for them. Mm -hmm. So I ask you, I your, humbly ask your prayers for all these dear souls. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Well, a uh, couple things on the agenda tonight, Father, but we wanted to uh, start with a bit of a follow-up from last program. We had a, mm -hmm. uh, a great viewer question that we received uh, via email, and uh, we you partly answered some of it, Father, but wanted to give a more full answer on the program tonight. So if I could just, uh, just read this first part of it here that we wanted to get into a bit more. This viewer wrote in and said, During the time of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, there was an anti-pope, Anacletus II, and the true Pope, Innocent II. So he asked, would it have been a sin to attend Mass offered by a priest who recognized Anacletus II as Pope and mentioned him in the canon of the Mass? Well, as I recall last week, Tom, uh, I did address the question of the Great Western Schism. Uh, I think the questioner also raised that point. Right. But I didn't really talk about Anacletus II. So, um, but I, I think what we said last week about the Great Western Schism, when, you know, you had the Pope elected in Rome, but then the French Cardinals went back to uh, France and elected someone else at Avignon. And then finally at the Council of Pisa, um, there was a third man elected, right? Uh, great confusion. Uh, the Church uh, understood that the fact that it was very confusing. They were all practicing the same faith. They were all still Catholics in their belief and in their practice, the religion. Uh, but the confusion arose from the action of the cardinals. And um, so uh, so it was actually a couple of centuries before with Anacletus II. Uh, the confusion also reigned there as well. And again, it was the because of the cardinals. Uh, the cardinals uh, uh, created the, the confusion by just the idea when Pope Honorius was dying at the time, uh, it was decided that eight of the cardinals would have the power to speak for all in electing the next pope. And they chose Innocent II. And uh, then the rest of the cardinals were not happy with that. And so they decided to uh, elect someone else. And uh, they elected a man who took the name of Anacletus II. Anacletus II had um, the support of uh, the Romans, essentially and Innocent II, not so much. So Innocent withdrew from Rome. Uh, Anacletus reigned there, 
uh, Innocent went to France and uh, actually uh, received the support of the heads of religious orders and uh, also the heads of uh, Catholic, Catholic monarchs. And so it was, it was finally decided, but, but actually only after the death of Anacletus II was it really settled once and for all that he was not the true pope and that Innocent II was the true pope. Um, and so e even uh, up to the day that Anacletus II died, one might say he, he had some claim to the papacy because, um, you know, the, the, the cardinals did actually choose him in, in preference to Innocent II. But it is the church ultimately which must decide these things. And the church has decided subsequently that Innocent II was the true pope and Anacletus II was not. Now, this has a lot to do with the answer to the question um, of how Anacletus II was, became to be known as an anti-pope uh, when it was not clear during his lifetime, but only after his death. Um, but one cannot anathematize those who followed him in good faith uh, because they had reason to do so. After all, I mean, there were cardinals who were insisting that he was that they had elected him legitimately uh, rather than Innocent II. So again, there in the 12th century, we have um, a situation which was unfortunately somewhat similar to the situation in the 14th century with the Great Western Schism. And again, we, uh, we have behind all of that the nefarious behavior of certain cardinals who um, uh, what what can you say? They, at that time, they were very worldly, apparently, and uh, thought in worldly terms, and um, so that this was a sort of great suffering for the church, great suffering for the faithful. But uh, would it have been a sin for someone to include the name of Anacletus II in the Mass? Uh, would it have been a sin for someone to attend a Mass offered by him or those who followed him? Uh, no, I, I don't think the church has ever anathematized uh, those who did follow him because, again, of the confusion uh, mm. of the time. And the Church understands these things very well as a true mother, a spiritual mm. mother. And Father, what, was it the same uh, case as we had in the Western Schism where those who followed, uh, he who turned out to actually be an anti-pope, they still practiced the traditional Catholic faith, they still offered mm. the traditional Latin Mass, there mm. was no substantial deviation from Catholic tradition. Right. Well, in those times, even if there might have been confusion about who was the true Supreme Pontiff and Vicar of Christ on Earth because of the, of the imbecility of men, including cardinals, uh, one thing was clear, they, they all believed the same Catholic faith, mm -hmm. and they all practiced the same Catholic religion, regardless of which individual they thought had the better claim to the papacy. Mm -hmm a claim which the church herself, in time, would settle. Um, but one thing she did not have to do is uh, correct the religion of these people or their faith by saying, well, you know, this or that faction strayed from the faith and started inventing his own religion. Uh, heretics did that in, in, you know, in the past, we know. That was not a case of heresy. I don't know that there was any case of heresy alleged against any of these men. Mm -hmm. Uh, even in the worst of times during the uh, the Great Western Schism. I don't know that they were accusing each other of heresy um, because they all kept to the faith. Mm -hmm. I, I think, Father... In fact, uh, if any of them had strayed from the faith, I think that would have been a clear signal to everyone that they, that, that was they could not possibly be the Pope because they'd strayed from the faith. Yeah. And this is what I think it made it so confusing. They were elected by the same cardinals, essentially, and they kept to the faith. They adhere to the faith and the practice, the true religion. Mm -hmm. So, Father, this is not um, perfectly analogous with the situation in the church today, where I think oh, no. I yeah. think um, maybe some people will want to kind of draw an analogy and say, well, you know, these are certainly very confusing times as well, um, perhaps even more confusing, but mm -hmm. um, perhaps there is a maybe a, a priest of, of good faith today who will um, honestly believe that, say, Francis or any of the Novus Ordo pontiffs are actually true uh, popes of the Catholic Church, the traditional Catholic Church, and they will use their name in the canon of the Mass. So would it be wrong for someone to 
say, attend some of their masses if these, these priests did this in good faith and they honestly believe that these Novus Ordo Pontiffs were true Roman Catholics? Would there be any issue with that? Well, I think there would be an issue with that because I think the Church has made very clear that to be a, uh, you know, a head of the Church on earth and a, supreme, a Roman Pontiff and a Vicar of Christ, that you have to have the Catholic faith. You can't be uh, a notorious heretic or a flagrant denier of the faith. I think there are very good arguments to make that Francis, in fact, has denied the faith, continues to deny the faith, speaks contrary to it, um, and uh, calls it into question is undermining the faith in the, in the people. Mm -hmm. uh, by his talk about, oh, you know, God uh, wishing uh, all of the different religions, uh, God willing them all, and uh, by, by his actions even more so. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think a very strong case would be made, at least, at least this much, at least for this, that would certainly call into doubt uh, Francis uh, being a Catholic at all on the basis of his pronouncements and his behavior. Let's face it, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if any, not only a Catholic, if any pope or any cardinal or any bishop, but even any lay people, in the past had done the things that he has done and said the things that he has said, they would at least have been cited as suspect of heresy. And if they did not amend their ways, the law said that they should be considered heretics, denounced as heretics after six months of failing to heed the warnings. Uh, I think that would be true in the past, as I say, of any layman, let alone a priest or a bishop or a cardinal or a pope especially. Uh, I think that is absolutely true of uh, Francis. Um, no, no, here, it, the only people who might say, well, it's very confusing over who's Pope because of the uh, resignation of Benedict XVI, uh, did that count or not? Um, there are those who distinguish between the magisterium and the ministerium, I think, if I recall correctly what their argument is. And they say that Benedict himself uh, thought that they went together, and so in resigning the one, he must be resigning both. But in fact, he wasn't, and so he didn't resign from in both capacities. So he remained the Pope in spite of himself, in spite of his own, not only uh, uh, of his own resignation, but in, in his, his repeated disavowals of the papacy, that he remained the Pope anyway. Uh, because of his misunderstanding of the papacy itself. Curious one. And uh, that, uh, therefore, Francis could never have been the Pope, but now that Francis uh, has died... Um, Benedict has died. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Now, now that Benedict has died, uh, this leaves only Francis, and so the Benedictantists now are in the situation of saying, well, now uh, we're, we proclaim that France, that Benedict was not um, uh, able to resign in his capacity, and so he still retained the papacy until the end of his life, and so Francis is a non-pope, and that's the logical conclusion to what their argument is. And so is that confusion uh, in any way um, similar to uh, analogous with the problem back in the 14th century during the Great Western Schism? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it's analogous to the situation with Anaclasis the second in the 1100s either. Yeah. Um, no, here we have something that is quite unique, and that is um, we have pontiffs who, they say, don't even understand the meaning of the papacy and the nature of the papacy. Mm -hmm. And yet they claim that they are pontiffs and that that would not prevent them from accepting the office of the papacy, even they did not know what it was. Uh, they had substantial errors concerning the very nature of the office that, that they were called upon to accept. Um, so that, and, and then the question arises not only with regard to their concept of the papacy, but their very notion of the faith itself, not only the notion of the faith, the doctrines of the faith, but the very concept of faith, the very virtue of faith, what it even means. As modernists do not, you know, they do not believe in the Catholic understanding of the supernatural virtue of faith. They reject it, and they replace it with a, a very different, well, modernist concept of what faith is. Pope Pius X warned us himself in Pashendi. He said they lay the axe to the very root of faith itself. 
uh, that is the very virtue of faith. They destroy it. Um, they, they redefine it and thus define true faith away, replace it with a totally different concept, which is not only not Catholic, it's anti-Catholic, which is why St. Pius X said that modernism is the complexus of all heresies, mm -hmm. the synthesis of all the heresies. And Francis is certainly a modernist. Benedict XVI was a modernist as, a, as an expert, theological expert in Vatican II, and he took very much credit for what happened at Vatican II and what came out of Vatican II. <clears throat> so uh, they're both modernists, a very different concept of what faith is. I mean, Benedict himself um, kept referring to, the, and John Paul II before him, uh, kept referring to the, the faith experience, the faith experience. That's the modernist concept of faith. It's not an intellectual ascent to divine revelation. It is an, some kind of an experience of the divine somehow. And, uh, and it's something that not only Catholics experience, but everybody experiences it one way or another. Muslims and uh, Jews and also experience the divine. And that this gives, this is at the root of their religions. And their experiences are all true. True experiences of the divine, quote unquote. Uh, Pope Pius X spells it all out in Pashendi. So none of this should be a surprise to us when we see what's happening in the Vatican today with Francis. Because yeah. he's a dyadnable modernist. Um, and um, unfortunately, people who try to ignore uh, the modernism and, and somehow uh, minimize the importance of it are making very serious errors against the faith mm -hmm. and in serious errors of judgment. This is not in any way analogous to what the church went through uh, during uh, the Great Western Schism in the 1400s, mm -hmm. 14th century, I should say. Father, not to get too far afield, but um, as you know, there are some uh, traditional Catholic, ostensibly traditional Catholic priests today who will um, say that they're traditional Catholic, practice the traditional Catholic faith, even offer the traditional Latin Mass, but they will use Francis's name in the canon of the Mass. They will mm -hmm. say that, um, you know, he is unquestionably the Pope. You can't even question uh, the, the fact that he, that he may not, not be a valid Pope. Um, but yet at the same time, they don't actually live that out. They don't um, follow his commands like they, like they would no. a, a true Pope. Why would a priest do that today? That seems like the single worst possible um, position that a priest Well, it is, it is explicitly schismatic to say, yes, he's the Pope, Absolutely, no question, and no, we don't have to do anything he says in practice. <clears throat> um, that is the very essence of schism, right? I recognize he's the Pope, but no, he has no authority over me. Um, those who at least acknowledge there's a doubt about his, his faith, and there's a doubt about, therefore, his papacy, uh, are, very, are more, much more logical and reasonable and Catholic, because um, people like that, uh, recognize, well, if, if, um, if he really is the Pope, and I'm absolutely convinced he is the Pope, then I have to obey him in anything that is not explicitly contrary to the Catholic faith. And I have to submit to anything and, and give him the benefit of the doubt when, I, when there's a doubt as to whether something is permitted or not. And, but so those who, um, who don't do that, who say he's the Pope, but no, we just don't have to do anything he says a priori, we don't have to do it. Even before he says it, we we, we, we are exempt from his, his authority. And there are a whole so-called traditional Catholic organizations of clergy who have that attitude. That's their official position almost. Um, that is, really is a schismatic attitude. And, and, uh, but those youngers who say, well, at least we recognize there's a doubt about his papacy. Well, then they recognize that, you know, a, you know, a, pope, a man who's a doubtful pope, the, the principle the church gives us, really, from the, all the way back in the 1300s, is a doubtful pope is not, practically, practically speaking, the pope. Because if he's doubtfully the pope, then he doubtfully has the authority to command, and you're not obliged to obey a doubtful authority. Mm -hmm. And, Father... Um... How, how dangerous is it to attend uh, masses where, where a priest would do that? Because it seems, um, as you said before, you know, if he's, if he's using uh, the name of the Novus Ordo Pontiff in the Mass, at the most solemn moment of the Mass, immediately before the, the consecration, <clears throat> it seems almost like the priest is, is being dishonest. And that almost seems to be a worse position than, say, um, a, a, if you had a Novus Ordo priest who, uh, you know, uh, believes that Francis is a true pontiff and actually follows him, 
uh, even if it's in, in non-Catholic things, at least that priest is being honest. Um, but it seems that well, if you have a traditional priest who, uh, if you say doubts, then, then in other words, he has the attitude, well, yes, he is the Pope, but no, I don't have to obey him. Right. And so I'm going to put his name in the can of the Mass for show, basically, yeah. to make you feel good about it yeah. and make you think all is well um, and that we're in union with Rome. And, um, and, and at the same time, I'm contradicting uh, in everything, every, every other yeah. way what I'm saying at the altar, right? Yeah. Well, some of it, it depends on this. You know, some, some want to interpret the prayer of the canon the Mass, the, the opening prayer of the Canon of the Mass, as saying, we're praying, we're just praying for all these people. And so when we, when I, let's say, as a traditional priest <clears throat> who believes that Francis is the Pope, well, I'm, I'm just praying for him there. And as far as the point about that I'm praying for all the, you know, true Catholic and te teachers of the apostolic faith and so on, um, the, uh, that doesn't have to apply to Francis for me to pray for him in the canon. I can pray for him and then also add, and I'm also praying for all of the true teachers of the Catholic and Apostolic faith, even if that doesn't include Francis. But uh, of course, there are those who more correctly say, no, uh, actually what you're praying for in there is summed up in the very fact that they are true teachers of the faith, of the Catholic faith, the Apostolic faith, and Francis is not. And when you include him in that list, you are um, falsifying that list. If you think he is a true teacher of the Catholic and Apostolic faith, you really believe he is, then you should be Novus Ordo and doing whatever he tells you to do regardless. But you don't believe it because you're, you're holding the, the, at least the 1962 Latin Mass, and you really don't, don't obey anything he says anyway. So you really don't believe that he is a true teacher of the Catholic and Apostolic faith. So you can't say that honestly. If you if you if you understand the meaning of the prayer, that you're including him under that, under that the aegis of, you know, a true teacher of the Catholic and Apostolic faith. If you believe he's not, then um, what what can you say but that you're being deceitful? Yeah. And unfortunately, maybe to appease the people and make them feel good about being there with you. <clears throat> that you're standing before the altar, before the tabernacle, and lying. I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I can pray for his soul, which I do. I want him to save his soul. I want him to repent. I want him to embrace the Catholic faith, uh, live it, profess it, <clears throat> even die for it as a martyr, if it's God's will. Uh, but I cannot acknowledge him now as a true teacher of the apostolic faith taught by our Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles, and by, taught by the apostles and their true successors throughout all these centuries. I cannot number Francis among them. Right. <clears throat> Honestly, yeah. it'd be a lie. In fact, I pointed that out to Monsieur Lefebvre. Uh, the last time I had actually had a chance to speak with Monsieur Lefebvre, he asked me this very question. Uh, if I used at that time John Paul II's name in the canon of the Mass. And I said no, and I could see that it concerned him. But he asked me, why not? And I appreciated him asking me that. And I explained to him, because I don't believe that, he, I'm not convinced he has the Catholic faith, and for this reason, that reason, the other reason, I don't believe that he has the very Catholic concept of faith itself, but he has the modernist concept of faith. And as I'm standing before the altar, I would feel that I'm, telling, I'm lying to God and everyone present there if I pretended that he was a true teacher of the Catholic and apostolic faith. Um, and Monsignor Lefebvre, actually, as I mentioned before, just sat there for, a, it seemed like a while, but it might have been only five, six seconds or so. And then he, he just kind of shrugged and changed his subject. And I had the impression there because he agreed. I think deep down he actually agreed with that. Um, so, I mean, I, I could see a, a priest saying, look, I have a doubt about Francis being the Pope, because I have a doubt about whether he's even the member of the Catholic Church, <clears throat> because I don't, I'm not convinced he has the faith. So I have a doubt about this. Um, and he might say, so I give him the benefit of a doubt, and I put his name in the canon, right? And 
one might say to him, well, therefore, um, you know, you have a doubt about him being the, the Pope because you have a doubt about him being a member of the church. Um, but then you don't obey anything he says, and, and the priest says, well, as a matter of fact, I don't feel obliged to obey him because of that doubt as to whether he even has the authority. Mm -hmm. And based upon the principle, Papa Dubius, Papa Nullus, uh, a doubtful pope is really in practice not a pope, in effect, because of the doubtfulness of his authority, you do not have an obligation of conscience to obey his commands. Uh, someone could make an argument like that, I think. In fact, I, I, think, uh, I think Bishop Mendes basically made that argument. I think he recognized even back then that there was a doubt. I mean, he expressed that doubt to me about Francis being, about John Paul II being Pope. And he just said, well, I, I just give him the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, in practice, he, 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 uh, he saw, he saw the, the, the ramifications of that doubt meant that his commands were very questionable, mm -hmm. to say the least. So, uh, but in any case, I mean, in answer to your question, I think, uh, again, a priest who, who, who understands uh, enough to hold fast to the traditional faith in spite of Francis, recognizing that Francis does not profess that faith, cannot honestly stand at the altar or anywhere else. And, and in number, Francis among those who are true teachers of the Catholic and apostolic faith. I think that would be a bald-faced lie on their part. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a fascinating subject, Father, and I know it's come up. This is the, uh, <clears throat> considered the unicum controversy, the unicum controversy, one with one with those, right? Yeah, it's it's come so. up before, Father, and I'm I'm sure that's not the last of it. But, no, um, no, certainly not. But I, I thank you for uh, indulging me there. But um, mm. Father, we uh, something else you wanted to talk about tonight. There was uh, a recent video put out on uh, YouTube titled "No Latin Mass or Prayers for Dead Non-Catholics." Uh, we had mm -hmm. uh, multiple multiple emails about this because you are actually uh, cited in this video, Father. Um, yeah, what do you know? As a uh, as a John three five uh, mocker, I believe was the terminology I'm, I'm used. I'm uh, flattered that anyone would do <laughs> my opinions worthy of citing, even to condemn. <laughs> Actually, yeah. uh, but Father, in this video, um, the case is made that uh, you know when Queen Elizabeth II of, of England re recently died uh, some months ago, um, we actually mentioned her on the program, and you several times uh, said that you know the duty of a Catholic is to pray for her soul, um, pray pray that God has mercy on her soul, and there were several other Catholic figures who who said similar things. But this video actually condemned that idea, um, mm -hmm. put forth multiple papal quotes uh, from, from various documents and letters um, saying that that is actually not a traditional Catholic position to take. Mm -hmm. It is actually a heretical position to say that we can pray even private prayers for deceased now, now let me guess, this, this must be one of the Diamond Brothers, uh, I imagine. Because okay. yes. they always take the, the harshest and most extreme position possible mm -hmm. is always the correct position, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's, how they, yeah. that's how they determine what's the right position to take. Yeah. So, but I'm not surprised. There's, so. a, there's a whole 20-minute long video on this, on this subject. And you received it. a number of inquiries about it. Yes, asking... So somebody's listening to it. Yes, Father. So, so um, just to... Uh, could, you, could you clarify your position? Are you, in fact, uh, stating something heretical when you're asking for us to, to pray for the repose of the soul of, of Queen Elizabeth II? No, I mean, my, my words could be twisted, I suppose, to somehow be interpreted that way, right? But you'd have to twist my words pretty severely, I think, to, uh, and, and, and presume them in the worst possible way. Which, again, I think applies to, uh, well, anyway, uh, <laughs> regardless, you know, the, Tom, the, um, as I recall, with that program, I was talking about uh, the error of those who are praising, were praising Elizabeth, praising her and praising her. And my point was, don't praise her. Look at the things she did and didn't do as, as queen, with the authority that she had taken, some would say, usurped, right? And, um, and uh, you know, this, this is enough to make the blood run cold, a fear for her. Right, 
uh, because of what she, well, you say, things she promoted and used her her royal position to promote. And uh, these were, in, in cases, very, very immoral things, you know. But when I talked about rather pray for her, the sense of it was we had to pray for her because of the, you know, she has a terrible responsibility before God for what she's done there. But uh, my, my meaning of praying for her was we had to pray for her repentance. We have to pray for her conversion. Um, now, is that uh, she's dead? Does that mean it's no longer possible to pray for her conversion or her repentance? Well, you know, there's a theological school of thought that says that God sees all prayers and sacrifices from the vantage point of eternity. And God can take all of those and, uh, as it were, employ all of those in giving grace to a soul as they're approaching death in the hopes that they will repent. And in Elizabeth's case, as with any other case of a non-Catholic, our first repentance is to pray for the repentance of unbelief, that they accept the faith. I mean, that's without faith it is impossible to please God, as St. Paul says. So that's the very first thing we have to repent of, and that is not having the true faith, rejecting the true faith. So I think every Catholic who would pray for Elizabeth would understand that. Maybe I should have made that more explicit for the Diamond Brothers' benefit, but I'd like to think that every Catholic I know of knows that what I'm, I'm trying to say is pray for her repentance and her, um, her uh, you know, conversion. Yeah. Uh, with the understanding, not that she could repent after she died or convert after she died, but with the understanding that God who sees these, these prayers in eternity could, by his divine power, uh, actually employ them in providing graces for her repentance and her conversion at the end of her life. I mean, it's an act of, simple act of charity to do that. And uh, the Church, as far as I know, has never condemned that. <clears throat> Praying for the conversion and the repentance of sinners. <clears throat> Even after they're dead, with the understanding that God, for saying those prayers, could provide the graces necessary. At, at the time of their death, to move those souls mm -hmm. to uh, conversion and repentance. <clears throat> so uh, it is certainly not sinful to pray for that of anyone. Okay, but I mean beyond that, th there's another very important point, and that is, as Catholics, we can personally pray for anyone. Okay, and uh, ask God to have mercy on them. Um, as I say, the Church is not does not forbid us and never has forbidden us to pray for people who are even deceased, but ask God to have mercy on them, in a sense, retroactively, to give them the graces they needed to be saved then, conversion, repentance. I don't know that the Church has ever forbidden that uh, on a personal level. Now, as a priest, I have to be careful there because I do have obligations. I can't give scandal. So for me to offer public prayers in my capacity as a priest from the altar for someone who died outside the faith, that would be uh, basically making a statement, look, we know they died outside the faith, but it doesn't matter whether they have the true faith, they can still be saved anyway. Okay, As a private individual, I, I can pray for their conversion. I could even offer Mass for that intention privately. Okay, But I can't publicly profess, yes, let's all pray for Elizabeth II and her, uh, you know, eternal welfare. I can't say, unfortunately, I think Taylor Marshall did say that, she's gone to her reward, and we pray she's at peace now, in the peace of God. I mean, I could not make a statement about that. No. Without qualifying it, let's at least hopefully pray for her conversion and her repentance, which would be necessary for salvation, that God gave her that grace at the time of her death. We can pray for that, right? Um, but we can't pretend <clears throat> that as far as with everything we know uh, publicly, uh, that we can publicly pray for her as though uh, nothing else mattered, uh, as though her being a heretic and the head, uh, the, the pres 
talk about presumption being the head of the church established by Christ in England. I mean, what is that? You know, uh, we just can't we we can't consider that as being okay with God, you know, or okay with our Lord, as though that doesn't matter. But you know, we can refer here actually to um, the Code of Canon Law itself, uh, Canon two two six two. Actually, this is the true Code of Canon Law, not the the modern replacement for it of John Paul II in 1983. And this is about Canon 2262 of the old 1918 Code of Canon Law. It says, uh, with regard to exclusion from spiritual favors, it says, excommunicated persons do not partake of the indulgences, suffrages, and public prayers of the Church. However, it is not forbidden that the faithful should pray for them privately, that priests should offer Mass for them privately, in the absence of the danger of scandal. But in the case of an excommunicated person who must be avoided, an excommunicatus vitandus, they may pray only for his conversion. So even if someone were excommunicated formally by decree in the worst possible way, as an excommunicatus vitandus, the priest could still pray or even offer Mass for him privately, but only for his conversion, okay? And that, I think, needs to be understood. So maybe the fact that uh, one of the Diamond Brothers objects to this, and it has become known to us, is a good thing, because maybe this gives us the opportunity to explain more fully the Church's teaching on this, which is not their teaching. Uh, and I, I refer to uh, this uh, very fine gentleman who is a uh, Cornelius Alapide scholar, uh, has uh, shared with me uh, this from the, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass by Nicholas Gere. The date on this publication, 1937, 1930, 1931, okay? This is the ninth edition of Reverend Dr. Gear, The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Gear, G-I-H-R, for those who are not familiar with it. And this is what he says on page 670. He says, the distinction between the ecclesiastical memento for the living and the memento for the dead must be carefully observed. From the former, that's from the memento of the living, are excluded merely the excommunicati vitandi, which is what we were talking about before, those that have to be avoided as excommunicated ones, because for them not even a direct application may be made. The canon says that only prayers for their conversion may be offered, right? From the second, that's a memento of the dead. On the contrary, in general, all that have died, separated from the church, unbelievers, heretics, schismatics, excommunicated persons, for these, in case they are suffering in purgatory, the church prays not by name, but only in general, as is the case in the memento, onibus in Christo quiescentibus. Now, this statement by Father Gear is very interesting because he says that it is not permissible to name at the memento of the dead in the Mass uh, those who die as unbelievers, heretics, schismatics, excommunicated. You can't name them. He doesn't say it's forbidden. He, he said, well, you, you can name them privately, but you can't publicly announce that you're praying for them, is a sense of what he's saying here. He says, they, they are prayed for, he says, in the general prayer for those who might be in purgatory, but he allows for the fact that those might be in purgatory yeah. and that the church can pray for them in her general intercessions, asking God to have mercy on them, which is very interesting in 1931 that Reverend Nicholas Gere would say that. Unbelievers, heretics, schismatics, excommunicated persons, for these, in case they are suffering in purgatory, the Church prays not by name, but only in general, as is the case in the memento of the dead. And he cites here, omnibus in Christo quiescentibus, for all who are sleeping in Christ, he says. 
as a private individual and in, in his private intention, the priest may, in both mementos, make intercession for all without distinction, he says. And then he goes on to quote uh, in Latin, um, De Sacramentis et Censuris. So he talks about um, the fact that as a private individual, the priest can pray for them, even those, well, those who are alive and living in heresy, but even those who are dead and have died in heresy, the priest can pray for them, but he, his prayer for them is for their conversion and for their repentance. We have to remember that. So uh, the church considers that to be an act of charity, not an act of infidelity, to pray for their conversion and their repentance. So uh, again, I mean, the Diamond Brothers get it wrong, but because they get it wrong, again, we can still learn from their errors what the Church truly teaches, and oppose their errors with the true teaching of the Catholic Church. So I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if I was in talking about praying for Elizabeth, if I was somewhat remiss in being more clear on that, I'd like to make up for it now. Um, and I think I have, I hope. Uh, but I don't know that I was that unclear. I, I just kind of assumed that our Catholic people who were watching understood that when we're praying for someone who died as a heretic, uh, we're not just saying it doesn't matter whether they're Catholic or not, everybody's going to heaven. We're not saying that. We never said that. We've always said the opposite. <clears throat> but we're asking God to give them the grace that is necessary for their salvation. It starts with conversion, mm -hmm. <clears throat> embracing the true faith, and it starts, with, and then with repentance for sin. Mm -hmm. And it seems obvious, Father, every Catholic would know that there's a difference between public <laughs> prayer and private prayer. I mean, we know that mm -hmm. non-Catholics do not you know, take part in, in, the, in the, the sacraments they don't receive, you know, they're not a member of the, the institution, the society of the church, so they're not going to receive all of the, all of the benefits that a, mm -hmm. that a member of the society of the church would receive. They cannot receive a Catholic sure. burial, a Catholic funeral. Of course, we, every traditional Catholic, I think, would... This is very basic Catholic 101 catechism, yeah. right? so everyone should know, but there are perhaps those who don't, yeah. and maybe the Diamond Brothers don't know that. But I think it's... Um, I. I think a really um, important point to make too, where you you talked about how God sees things with the the scope of of eternity, and I think that also, um, I mean, every Catholic again knows that our Lord in, in His Passion, He didn't suffer only, He didn't atone only for the sins that had been committed prior to His incarnation, but in fact, all of the sins that mankind would commit in the, in the future as well. And um, He made reparation to God the Father for all of them. Right, and I, and um, I again, I think it's always um, been a basic Catholic understanding that, especially in, in the agony in the garden, when our Lord underwent the um, the the agony there, he he again was um, had this this view of eternity in mm -hmm. in his mind, and he saw all of the sins not only that mankind had committed, but that they would commit, and he suffered uh, on behalf of all of those sins that mankind would commit, but also. He uh, received relief of some sort from the acts of reparation that mankind would make in the future to him. And so this God, of course, always sees things with the scope of eternity. So if you apply that to this situation, it seems clear. Um, we could pray for those who, who have deceased. It's not as if God is bound by, by the constraints of time. He can see our prayers True. now. And, and it's not as though they were condemned to hell, and because you prayed for them later, God will change his mind and exactly. take them out of hell and yeah. take them to heaven. <laughs> yeah. No one thinks in those terms. I hope not. It's a matter of the graces that are given to the individual at the moment when he needs them the most. Mm -hmm. That is, as he's facing death. And can I obtain those graces now for someone who's passed away? And again, I don't know that the church has at any time ever condemned that idea. No. But it raises some interesting questions. I mean, could I pray for the conversion and repentance of Judas Iscariot? I don't see why not, Father, but I don't well, I would I, I might do that, but you know, what real hope do yeah. I have, you know, for that? I mean, our Lord said, Woe to the man by whom the betrayal comes. Yeah. It would be better for him had he never been born. Yeah. We have that statement by our Lord. But the church has never formally pronounced Judas or anyone actually as being yeah. condemned to hell. Because yeah. that's not why God created the church or established the church to make those, those statements. Yeah. Our Lord makes those judgments. Uh, the church does have the power from Christ to pronounce those who have been saved. Yeah. Because that is the work of the church, to save souls, right? Yeah. Uh, it is not the work of the church to condemn souls. Yeah. 
Um, so it, it might seem a little presumptuous of me to pray for the conversion ultimately, uh, you know, of, of Judas Iscariot. But one thing I know, if, if I do that in goodwill, and uh, God will take all prayers that I offer out of true faith and true hope and true love for him, and he will apply that to accomplish the good for some soul and for this, the benefit of some soul's salvation. I know that for a fact. Okay. So, um, anyway... Father, would 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 there be a uh, a certain hierarchy uh, of prayers? Uh, for example, would we have more a higher obligation to pray for, uh, say, members of our own family or, or also mem members of of the church um, before we would pray for non-Catholics? The church is always recognized as a prior of obligation, even in charity. Uh, there is the obligation that we owe in justice. Um, piety requires us to. Uh, prefer the good of our own country to that of another country. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we have a special obligation to pray for our own country. We have a special obligation to pray for our own families, members of our family. A special obligation to pray for our parents. And this is an obligation not only in justice, but an obligation, I'm sorry, this is an obligation not only in charity, this is an obligation in justice we have. <clears throat> so those obligations in justice have to be satisfied first, as it were, before you can even think about charity. Because you can't allege charity in place of justice. Charity has to build upon justice and presumes justice. So no one can say, well, I don't have to be just as long as I'm charitable. They'd be committing a sin against justice. And that would preclude charity, obviously. Mm -hmm. right. Okay. Well... We first have to give people that which is owed to them right. before we can talk about being charitable and, and works of charity toward them. Uh, and what is owed is determined by the virtue of justice. Piety requires us to uh, seek the good of those near and dear to us, our benefactors, and so on, in the first place. Right. Okay. Fine, maybe we could uh, fit in another uh, viewer email that we uh, wanted to get to last week. I'm sure we have time for several more. <laughs> okay, Father. Uh, Father, how does the chair of Peter ever see a Pope like Pius IX or St. Pius X ever again? With all the modernist cardinals who have been put in place by the last few popes, uh, none of them are traditional, especially when it comes to the sacraments and the Mass. So how does a traditional Pope ever get elected again? Well, that is certainly the question of the day, isn't it? <clears throat> this is an argument that people use against the state of Accountant's position because if the city of Acanta's position is true, and these recent popes were not really popes at all, they had no authority to appoint cardinals. The cardinals they, they appoint have no status as cardinals within the Catholic Church, and they have no ability to elect pope successors, right? Uh, Peter. So um, this is one argument that they use, probably the most telling argument, I guess, and I think, I, think it's a, I think it's a good argument. Unless one says, okay, well, the fact is God has the power to provide a true Roman pontiff in spite of that. Um, we see, and I, I point out the Council of Constance, an actual historical event in the history of the Church, which gave us Pope Martin V uh, at, to end the Great Western Schism. And so I think that's a practical example today of how God has ways of getting us out of these, uh, these situations, these impasses we get ourselves into because of our sins. So I wouldn't say it's impossible to have another true Roman pontiff, uh, even like St. Pius X or, Pius, uh, or Pope Pius XI or Pius XII or better. Uh, God can provide that. He has the power to do so. Um, we don't even have the power to imagine what he has the power to do. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, this is the, the, second, the second greatest mistake we make, human beings always make, is over, overestimating their own power. Human beings. The, the second most terrible and tragic mistake we make is overestimating our own power, even our own power for evil, because we're just creatures. But the most serious mistake we make Number one, in the order of terrible, tragic errors we make, is underestimating the power of God. 
right? And that's, that is where we get ourselves into serious trouble. And so we cannot legitimately underestimate the power of God. I mean, who would have anticipated the resurrection but our Blessed Mother alone? But she was given that. Even Peter, right? Who uh, was given by God the Father to know that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> Could not accept the fact that Christ was going to die on the cross. And after he did die on the cross, basically he had to be convinced that Christ had really risen. You know? So only our Blessed Mother had the faith with that, uh, during that Holy Saturday when our Lord's body lay in the tomb. Which is why we still consecrate Saturdays to Our Lady uh, to this very day. Um, so we can't say that there's just no other way. When you ask, how can it happen? I say, I don't know. You ask, can it happen? I say, of course it can. God has the power to do this. We saw him do something rather extraordinary during the Council of Constance, which no one foresaw. And even in retrospect, we go back and look at it and say, you know, that's interesting how, how did that happen. But it happened, and it gave us one of the great, great popes. Uh, pope Martin V, you know, I mean, who can underestimate the service that that one pope did to the church in the aftermath of the great Western system, what he did to bring everything together and reassert that fundamental unity of the church. I mean, it was marvelous. You know, it just makes one, again, wonder at the, at the mercy and the power of God in, in providing that. But um, the answer, to, I, I'd have to say, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. I don't know anyone who does have the answer to the question, except God himself. But I know he has the answer. That's what faith is. You know, there are those who, who want to abandon shit because they see what's happening. Because they can't imagine how this could work, turn out right in the end. They just can't imagine it. So they're jumping ship and going, running after orthodoxy, right? And jumping from the frying pan into the fire, you know, um, because orthodoxy is definitely not the answer. That's part of the problem. Uh, but for some reason, they, they imagine that um, um, all is lost, and, and so they're jumping ship. Um, I'm afraid those who are painting themselves into the corner with Francis are going to wind up, you know, wind up in the North 40 doing exactly what the church told them never to do. Don't change your faith to suit anybody. In times of confusion, hold fast to the traditional faith. Hold fast to the traditional practice. That's what the church has always said. And those who are following Francis are going to wind up, who knows where, but they're not going to wind up Catholic. Not where Francis is leading them uh, with this synod of synodality. Even Cardinal Pell, who just recently died, <clears throat> uh, supposedly he was the author of this Demos statement in which he condemned the idea of Francis's synod on synodality. And as far as I know of it, he's actually warning that it's leading everybody out of the church and away from Christ. And he, he, he predicted that it is a disaster for the faith and for the faithful. So, uh, you know, Cardinal Pell was not known to be the great traditionalist, you know, in terms of holding only to traditional mass and following only the traditional catechisms. He didn't reject the new way. He accepted the new Osoro. And because of his acceptance of it, he was promoted and promoted. And some say eventually stabbed in the back because he still had too much of the old, the old faith left in him. And there was still some resistance in him uh, they say to the the like completely surrendering to the Novus Ordo, which is well mar that marks you for death in the Novus Ordo today. You know, if Francis sees that you still have ties to the traditional faith in any way, either you're going to have to give those up or you're going under. And some some say that that's what happened with Cardinal Pelton. I don't know. Uh, forbid, uh, I hope uh, Peter Diamond will forgive me for praying for his soul. <laughs> he uh, certainly repented, embraced the true faith, and saved his soul. But uh, in any case, um, evidently uh, there was some uh, unhappiness with him or discomfort with him in the, the more extreme manifestations of the Novus Ordo. And uh, if, in fact, he did pen that demos uh, statement, uh, warning everyone about this synod idea, this synodal church and this synod of synodality of Francis, 
that might be his last declaration, as it were, his last gasp of what remained of him in him of Catholicism. And I think it was interesting that this was published, I think, after he died. <coughs> and here we have Benedict dying, and then they publish a book on his behalf, right? And it wasn't by this Ganswine, my tender he had, it was by some other source or outlet that, that Benedict went to to publish his thoughts, as though after we're dead, please publish this, it's too dangerous to do it while we're alive. You know, The only one I know who's uh, publishing his thoughts while he's alive has said that he fears being killed by Francis for, for exposing him, is Archbishop Vigano. And you'd think by this time, people would start wondering, what's going on? There's something really, really wrong going on here. And they should put two and two together and uh, realize that uh, the new order is not Catholic. The Novus Ordo is not Catholic. Francis is not Catholic. And uh, we, have to, we have to believe the traditional Catholic faith and we have to practice it in the traditional Catholic religion. I mean, all I can do is pray, hope and pray that people find their way to do that, because that's exactly what the Church has always said her Catholic faithful must do in times of confusion, chaos, such as we witness how, caused by modernism. We cannot jump on the bandwagon of the chaos and the confusion and try to dress it up in, you know, casting on surplus and say, that makes it okay. It's not okay. It's not Catholic. It's not Catholicism. And no amount of face paint is going to turn that sow's ear into a silk purse or anything resembling it. Uh, it's, it's what it is. It's the synthesis of all heresies. But why is the tenth got it right? We've got to listen to what he's telling us and, and take it seriously. So anyway, Tom, uh, you, you said we can get another several questions in, do you think? You'd rather uh, not. <laughs> well, Father, I actually was going to uh, ask a, a question. If you could give us something, oh. uh, some kind of positive uh, message here. We're um, we're a few weeks into Lent now. Would you have any any encouragement for us? Well, I'll tell you, the, the positiveness is this, and this is something that people expressed to me recently. In fact, there was a dear parishioner in Cleveland who came up to me uh, uh, on Saturday because a Saturday before the third Sunday in Lent, we read in the Epistle. Um, uh, about uh, Esau and and Isaac and Jacob, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the two brothers who contended even in the womb, right? And then the book of Genesis tells us that uh, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, they were both, both Abraham and Rebecca were up in years at this time. Um, Isaac. So, uh, uh, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, Isaac, Isaac and Rebecca were up in years by this time. So Rebecca kind of convinced Isaac that uh, Jacob, I beg your pardon, Jacob to go get the blessing of the firstborn from his father Isaac. Whereas officially Esau was the firstborn and he was entitled to it. And that was what Jacob intended, Isaac intended to do, mm -hmm. to give the blessing for the firstborn. It was very significant. Why? Because the blessing given to the firstborn essentially made him the new head of the family and placed the family under his obedience, obedience to him. So uh, Esau wanted that, obviously, right? He wanted to have that authority within the family as being kind of the successor patriarch for the family. And um, so uh, Rebecca convinced... Uh, uh, Jacob to go and uh, disguise himself and uh, trick his father into giving him that blessing. Uh, there were those who actually contacted me uh, that very morning well, I, as I was boarding an airplane. <laughs> How can this be? This was an out-and-out -out lie. How can this be sanctioned? How can this be right? You know. So I tried to hastily answer them before they closed the door to the airplane. I say, well, St. Augustine comments on this. He says, non est mendacium sedes mysterium. It is not a lie, but it is a mystery, he says. And it was a mystery of thing, how God's will would be accomplished. And I said, look, remember this, okay? The brothers were contending in the womb. A foot appeared and withdrew. 
And if that was the foot of Isaac who appeared first, or, or Je- the foot of Jacob who appeared first, I'm sorry, the foot of Jacob that appeared first, that actually has a certain meaning in Hebrew lore and wisdom that to place your foot in a certain place stakes your claim. And if your foot is the first thing, that actually entitles you. There's an argument that would entitle you to be the firstborn. Okay. So, uh, the other, another aspect of it was, and this is probably the most serious, that Esau came back from an unsuccessful hunt and he was famished and he saw uh, Jacob, who had a, a bowl of lentil soup, and uh, Esau was so hungry, he actually explicitly gave Jacob his birthright as the firstborn for the sake of that bowl of soup. So even to this day, we refer to you know trading this for a mess of pottage. Say, you give this away for a mess of pottage? What that did is it showed almost the contempt that Esau had for that blessing and that birthright. Yet he would explicitly, by an act of charity, uh, a barter actually, trade it and give that right. And could he have done that? He did. He actually did give that right to Jacob. Now whether you know Isaac would have acknowledged that or not, knew anything of this, is not a question. The fact is that Jacob had the right to that. And so when his mother was telling him, go and receive that blessing from your father. He's blind, practically deaf, perhaps. And uh, uh, he can feel and he can smell you, okay? Uh, He can also hear you, uh, even though his ears might not be working as well as they used to. And so you have a right to this and you should go claim it. All this was was a matter of actually pursuing God's will because it was God's will that Jacob become the third in the line of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was God's will that he was chosen to do that. And uh, Rebecca and, for that matter, Jacob were actually the instruments of pursuing God's will. Um, but it wasn't... Um, it was actually claiming what, which became uh, Jacob's by right because Esau had forfeited and willingly given it away, had forfeited that right. So, in any case, uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up, because that was the book of Genesis reading on Saturday, and on the, in the epistle we read about the prodigal son. Again, two brothers, right? The younger brother demanding his inheritance, even before his father was dead. Some nerve, huh? Saying, Dad, I can't wait till you die. I want my inheritance now. What brass? But isn't that exactly, I mean, that's kind of the mentality of sin, that's the mentality of sin, of a sinner. I want, I want it now, you know, here and now. What an insult to God. Father allowed him to have that. He took it, and to add insult to injury, he spent the money on sinful living. Like everything his father would have, would have raised him not to do, he went out and did with that money. Then he got hungry, and nothing satisfied him. There was nothing to satisfy him. So he thought, I better go home and apologize. And he was rehearsing. He was saying, which makes you wonder how sincere was he. <laughs> but anyway, um, but the father still loved him and rejoiced to see him back alive. He'd worried about him. He received him. This shows the goodness of God. There's no doubt about it. And the young man even said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me be to you as a hired servant. And the father took him back in. But the father told the older son, who was incensed that the younger brother had returned and been received, the father said, look, everything I have is yours. So he's telling the older, the older brother, look, your, your brother's not going to take anything away from you. He's received in his inheritance. He has no more inheritance. It's all yours now. Let him work for you. I mean, in a sense, that let him work for you and build up. This is yours now. But don't be grunching the fact that he's back, that he's alive, that God is send him back, you know, uh, hopefully repentant. Um, now, the reason why I mentioned this is because I mentioned uh, at the end of the Mass, I gave a little sermonette there, and I mentioned we have these two brothers who are given to us, and in both cases we have kind of a birthright. And this is a lesson for us today because as Catholics, we also have a birthright. 
And our birthright is to the traditional Catholic Mass, the true Mass. That's our birthright by virtue of the birth, the second birth of baptism. We all have a birthright to that. And we can give it away or we can throw it away. We can despise it. But we have a right to it by virtue of our baptism. The Catholic Mass, the Catholic sacraments, and the graces that come through them have a birthright to these, this Mass and these sacraments, these sacraments as channels of God's grace. And no one can legitimately take these things from us unless we're willing to part with them. And by the grace of God, we're not. So thank God for that. Thank God that you recognize your birthright. And uh, one of the ladies came in, and this is what actually started this whole explanation. Said, so in other words, I get the point, and, and I appreciate it, she said, for the, really the first time it hit me, that God has provided that. God has provided that there are Catholics who still will hold to their birthright and recognize it as their birthright and not part with it and not let anybody de deprive them of that. And she said, that makes me appreciate the mercy of God all the more, that here in these times, God has provided that there will be Catholics who will not let that happen and not give that up. So she actually uh, saw it as a point of devotion, taking what I said, but just inferring from it something else. It wasn't what I said that inspired her. It was the inference that she drew from it, really, which I consider to be, uh, again, a grace from God. So... Um, I would have to say, if we're going to say, try to say something encouraging, I would say what she said. I would say, yes, God has provided for this. He's giving the grace. He's actually giving the grace to all Catholics to recognize their birthright in the traditional Mass and traditional sacraments, and that no one has the right to take it away from them. But I would even go farther from what she said, okay? I would say, not only do... You have a right to it, and I have a right to it, and nobody has the authority on earth to take it away from us. But I would say even beyond that, God has a right to it, and nobody should dare take that away from him. Who would have the nerve to take away from God the traditional mass and traditional sacraments? Some nerve, huh? Uh, some audacity to say, no, God, you can't have this either. <laughs> and that's essentially what the modernists are trying to do. Well, I thank God that he would not part with it himself and has inspired us not to part with it either because it's our birthright. The traditional holy sacrifice of the Mass and the traditional sacraments. Our birthright. We have a right to these things. No one can deny them. Okay. Well, Father, thanks for uh, offering that traditional Mass every day. Thank you for administering this traditional sacraments oh. every day as well. Oh. I uh, certainly appreciate it. I know everybody does as well. well so. uh, thank God, right? He gave it to us. So. Yes, absolutely. With a command, do this. Yes. And that's what we do. Yep. Father, thank you for everything. Thanks for being here tonight. And oh, sorry, uh, God, God you. bless you. Well, I uh, say the same to you, Tom. God bless you and all of our viewers. Yes. Thanks to Thanks all of our time. viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.